Hi, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'm here to warn you that the audio on the following interview is a little bit dodgy. The reason has to do with very high traffic on the Internet in India, actually in Mumbai, after the July 13th terror attack. Anyway, we're sorry the audio isn't very good, but we hope you enjoy the interview. Good day, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. Professor Vinayak Chaturvedi of the University of California, Irvine, is going to talk to us about his book, Pazan Past, History and Memory in Western India, specifically Gujarat. That is one place that has punched above its weight when it has come to sending forth nationalists against the colonial state. The Mahatma and the Sardar were from Gujarat and Muhammad Ali Jinnah was, by ethnicity, a Gujarati. But there were others, peoples and communities fighting against state structures in their own way and incurring the disapprobation of the mainstream or dominant nationalists in the process. The Tharalas of the Kheda district were one such group. Peasants took up cudgels not only against the British, but also against the local elites with millenarian preachers, legends and late-night raids all thrown in for effect. Never mind that their uprisings were promptly quashed by the local authorities. What is important, Professor Chaturvedi stresses, is that they knew how to confiscate, collect, preserve, produce and distribute information in forms comprehensible to the colonial state, that is to say, written records, despite having had very little formal education themselves. We'll let Vinayak take over now and talk about his research in the colonial archives and his wanderings among the descendants of these people. Good morning, Professor Chaturvedi. Good morning. How are you? I'm great, and uh, thanks for doing this for the New Books Network. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, thank you. I'm glad I'm, I'm glad you uh, were able to have a conversation about the book. Um, yeah, uh, but well, before the book, could you tell us something about yourself and uh, about your career to date? Sure. Um, I uh, began my uh, graduate studies um, at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. Um, and at the time, I was um, uh, very interested in uh, economic history and uh, was working with uh, Robert Brenner, who um, wrote the very famous uh, series of arguments about the transition from feudalism to capitalism. And my interest initially in thinking about the agrarian India was to uh, address some of those concerns within the contemporary debates uh, within India. Um, but... Uh, in the process of being in graduate school, I also was reading uh, agrarian history um, that looked at, was influenced by cultural history, mainly someone like uh, Carlo Ginzburg. And then also, it was also a time where um, the writings of the subalternists, um, especially Partha Chatterjee, uh, were coming out. And uh, what I found was very interesting was that one of the earliest pieces that Partha Chatterjee wrote about was an engagement with the writings of Robert Brenner and really looking at uh, the, the arguments of political Marxism within the context of um, what the subalternists were trying to do. And for me, that sort of the link between uh, what my earlier interests in thinking about uh, Brenner's arguments about political Marxism, Arthur Chatterjee's arguments, and also the writings of Carlo Ginzburg, although on Italy... Uh, in the 16th century, provided a very interesting way of thinking about the possibilities of writing um, uh, agrarian history in India. Um, and so that's what really got me sort of uh, excited about the prospect of doing a different kind of project uh, within the field of uh, agrarian history in South Asia. So what made you pick Gujarat State as the site for this research? Well, um, I would say that it was, uh, well, after I finished my master's at UCLA, I ended up going to Cambridge uh, in England to do another master's. And at the time, I was working with 
um, uh, Chris Bailey. And the, my interest initially was to work on uh, um, princely states in central India. So mainly starting with Gwalior, but also the many smaller princely states in central India. However, there were a couple uh, major issues in doing a larger project on central India, namely that the, the Sindhya family, uh, because of, uh, were, was in a legal battle, the court oh, had, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. had sealed all the documents, mm-hmm. which, would, which made it very difficult to sort of think of a project realizing that you may not have access to a series of types of documents uh, related to uh, land holdings and agrarian society. And at the time, because I was only doing a one-year master's in Cambridge, um, uh, Chris Bailey had suggested thinking about Gujarat, because Gujarat being so uh, important, but yet the historiography was very limited at the time, uh, outside, you know, the works of a handful of, you know, very important works by, you know, whether it was Douglas Haynes or David Hardiman and uh, even of an earlier generation of scholars, um, Makran Mehta and others who were writing on the drop. But he thought that this was, I could address the kind of conceptual theoretical questions I had about agrarian society, but uh, addressing it within the Gujarat context. And and once I started working on the Gujarat project, in a certain sense, it took a life of its own. And what I was doing um, in terms of the kind of material I was finding was quite fascinating. So in, in a sense, I ended up staying in Gujarat versus going back to my original project on central India. So could you tell us something about uh, the research and the book in a nutshell? Sure. Well, I mean, I think what what... What emerged out of that one-year project um, was I was looking at famines uh, at the end of the 19th century and looking at a larger sort of pan-Gujarati project. But what became really interesting and evident was that um, that within central Gujarat, uh, in the area between Ahmedabad and Baroda, uh, was an area which, you know, for example, David Hardiman and others have written about, Judith Brown as well, in terms of the, this area be providing sort of a great deal of support for Gandhi's uh, mass politics in the 20th century. So that historiography was extremely well-documented and well-written. Um, in addition, uh, this was an area that a lot of economic historians and also um, demographers were writing about as well in tracking uh, the development of capitalism within uh, agrarian society uh, with cotton, with tobacco, uh, with other kinds of sort of cash crops. And that historiography was also well-developed. What I also found in my process of doing the research was that this is an area that was classified as one of the most criminal areas in Western India. And so I began to think about what were the relationships between capitalist development, nationalism, and criminality. And I think that's what really got me sort of thinking about, you know, what were the other possibilities of the kind of work that could be done uh, within agrarian society, uh, looking at the types of politics, um, especially of those who did not make it on sort of the, you know, the uh, academic radar, um, sort of low caste groups, tribals, Dalits, and others who uh, clearly had a politics of their own um, in, the, in the period of these major transformations that were taking place within colonialism and nationalism. So in a sense, that's what got me interested in thinking about that there must be a, an alternate history uh, of this area uh, that goes beyond sort of the configuration that we sort of knew uh, at the time. So that's what got me, I think, really interested uh, in thinking about uh, the project. Yeah, you mentioned uh, finding a reference to the Dharala groups in the colonial archives in Bombay. So could you elaborate a bit on that? Sure. Um, well, actually, the the main record that I found was actually in the official publications room in the Cambridge University Library. Um, and it was a, an obscure police report um, in which a... Um, Police inspector, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, was writing that uh, that the Patidars, the the sort of the elite landed uh, community um, that had power in the countryside, 
was using its power to extract labor and abusing uh, a legislation called the Criminal Tribes Act uh, in 1918. And I thought this was kind of an interesting moment because 1918 was also the year where Gandhi is having his satyagraha in Kheda district uh, at the same time. So it made me sort of really think that at one level, what is the politics of the Dharalas, what is their uh, standing within agrarian society by which you have these Bakilars who are at one level siding with Gandhi, Gandhi's looking for their support uh, in this period as a way to mobilize uh, agrarian society but the largest agrarian uh, population was of these Dharalas, which constituted about approximately a third of the population uh, in this district. Um, and what was happening to them, that they were being not only marginalized by both the colonial project, but also by these early forms of nationalism uh, in Kheda district. So in a certain sense, that's what uh, really triggered uh, an interest in sort of thinking about, well, what is this alternate history of the Dharalas by which these Patidars are finding that it's necessary to control labor. And that's what got me thinking about um, this earlier history of the 19th century, that these Dharala populations must have had uh, a, a range of arguments and ideas. Um, and here I'm building upon Carlo Ginsberg's, that this alternate history of ideas uh, of peasants that allows them to really uh, protest, allows them to articulate their own sets of concerns about the world that they live in, that even figures like Gandhi, who would acknowledge that the Patidars, for example, were abusing uh, labor uh, and controlling labor of groups like the Ralas, but yet he was not, he was not I would argue, as I've argued in my book, uh, was not uh, interested in sort of challenging that structure uh, to allow the Ralas that space to articulate their own sets of ideas and politics. And why do you think that was the case? I'm sorry? Uh, why do you think that was the case, you know, that Gandhi, he didn't, like, really encourage the Dharalas to, like, create their own space? Well, I think um, this is a, this is, I, I mean, if you look at the historiography of, of UP and others have written about this as well, that, you know, that that when it came to various issues of class and, and things that Gandhi often didn't cite with the workers, didn't cite with the peasants, didn't cite with the marginal um, for a, a, a range of different kinds of arguments that he was proposing. I mean, one could look at, uh, for example, Hind Swaraj and his arguments within Hind Swaraj and sort of say, well, he begins to articulate that it is the necessity of the oppressed, uh, of the persecuted, uh, to forgive their oppressors. And in a sense, one could extend it at that level. But on more practical political terms, one could also argue that Gandhi... Uh, was not interested in making those kinds of arguments at that specific time um, in thinking through, you know, what were the possibilities uh, of creating alliances with Patidars, um for the betterment of the nation. I mean, at one level, when he's talking to the Ralas uh, in speeches to the Ralas in the 1920s or even the 1930s, he's, he's asking the Ralas to, you know, to forgive their oppressors, to, to, to uh, forget past um, problems, to forget, past um, conflicts as a way to building a stronger nation. So, I, I mean, there are multiple ways I think one could interpret Gandhi's arguments, as many scholars have done through the decades. So I would say that it, it's very difficult to know exactly, but I think it, it's somewhere in between these kind of, these sets of arguments that Gandhi was proposing. Yeah, something for the way the common good of the people, like you might make some sacrifices, something like that. Possibly, but he also knew that... Uh, that, that the Ralas were also interested in, in, in other forms of protest. Uh, uh, they argued for certain types of ethics of violence, which he found uh, fundamentally problematic at this point. Uh, and their desire to contest the nationalist movement meant for Gandhi that they didn't understand politics. Um, I've argued in the book that, you know, at one level what Gandhi is really uh, what these Dharalas are really trying to do is provide an alternate form of a political community. Um, unfortunately, we don't know the exact contours of that political community, but at another level, uh, we do know that, uh, that there were these alternate ways in which not just peasants, but others were imagining political community that wasn't just about nationalism, which wasn't just about the nation state, 
there were other forms uh, that were uh, in existence at the time. Um, so I think it was also uh, a way of moving beyond these other forms of political community, uh, which uh, which could be numerous and plural, um, to thinking about a more unified way of thinking about political community vis-a-vis the nation. I think I think that's what I would would argue. And it's not just my argument. I'm sort of building upon the arguments of figures like Benedict Anderson, uh, who've made similar kinds of claims in his, you know, famous book, Imagine Communities, that you have the existence of, of many different kind of imagined communities, but it's the imagined community of the nation vis-a-vis the nation state that wins out in the end in the 20th century. So I, I would sort of argue that. And I think the other thing that is really important to consider, which the historiography on South Asia hasn't fully developed, is the significance of princely states. Um, because these peasants uh, were also aware of the existence of uh, the many princely states, the princes and kings, the maharajas and the smaller rajas, who in many ways thought of themselves as being legitimate leaders in opposition to or in contrast to uh, what the British were doing in terms of their kind of colonial policies. And so in a certain sense, um, I would argue that it wasn't that, that these peasants were futile in thinking about kings as a form of legitimate statecraft, um, but rather an alternative form of politics that were already in existence um, in India uh, at the time. And I don't think we have to look at just the highest kings and princes and princely states, but actually all the way down to the lowest levels in terms of what is it about kingship and legitimate government and ethical government that these peasants were really trying to articulate. And I would argue from that vantage point. Um, actually, uh, going back to the Dharalas, could you just tell us something more about them as a group and the sociocultural setting in which they operated? Yeah, I mean, now the, the term Dharala is... You know, there's a debate within the, within, uh, sort of by language scholars in terms of, if you look at the, the first part of the Rala, which is derived from Dhar or Dhara, um, the edge, uh, the edge of a sword, literally. So in, what I've argued is that these Dharalas were, uh, were swordsmen, uh, in the 18th, 17th century. Um, they were, Swordsmen who protected, for example, pilgrimage routes, uh, protected bazaars, and you know, uh, figures like uh, William Pinch and others have written about these uh, ascetic warriors, and I would argue that they fit into that larger kind of category of of, of individuals who had uh, certain uh, rights to land, certain rights within uh, agrarian society uh, for their service. Uh, to, previous governors of the land, especially in terms of protecting various routes and things like that. In the 19th century, uh, what we begin to see is uh, the East India Company in, in, after 1803 is really interested in settling these Dharalas into sort of uh, cultivating groups. And in many ways, they were already cultivators, uh, often practicing shifting cultivation. Um, and the interest of the East India Company at the time was to figure out a way to settle them as a way to begin to start taxing them. And the, I would say that in the, the larger project of the 19th century of doing this um, happens. So the Dharalas in many ways uh, are forced to abandon all sorts of occupations, um, especially by 1857, for example, the entire community is banned from uh, possessing weapons um, uh, as, as a way to prevent uh, sort of the, the rebellions of, Central and uh, Eastern India after spreading into Gujarat, and the Ralas by the end of the 19th century are mostly uh, sedent, uh, you know, settled peasant a peasant group. Um, in terms of caste, I think um, they're typically identified because they fall into the larger category of holy um, of Gujarat, uh, typically seen as a low caste uh, peasant community, um, and so. And they're quite populous. I mean, in the sense that, as I pointed out there, about one third of the population in central Gujarat, um, their populations also spread in other parts of Gujarat. Um, but it is by uh, the end of the 19th century when you begin to see the, the effects of 
this devastating famine in which the Ralas lose about, you know, anywhere between 15 to 20 percent of their population. Um, the plague epidemic uh, that follows, you begin to see large uh, numbers of the Ralas who um, are pushed off the land or forced to leave the land. And uh, suddenly there's actually a crisis within agrarian society because there's very few cultivators to cultivate the land. And it's, it's at this moment where you begin to see the rise of the Rala movements uh, to demanding uh, cash payments, more labor rights, land rights uh, that are taking place uh, uh, at this time. So you mentioned that they had a relationship with the Partidas in which they ended up getting abused by the Partidas. So how did that come to happen? Um, again, uh, many of these Dharalas uh, in the 19th century were already working as either uh, sub-tenants, um, agricultural laborers, oftentimes mm-hmm. servants of many Partidars. But on the other end, uh, you find... Um, Past manuals of various Dharala groups and others like the Dharalas who are intermarrying with, uh, with Kanbis who are formed the, the, um, the agrarian, uh, cultivators of what now, what are now known as Partidars. Uh, so you had a greater stratification among, uh, cultivators, even among Partidars who were intermarrying among Dharalas, but there's a fundamental, what I argue in my book is, there's a fundamental shift that takes place in the 19th century due to a range of British policies as well as the functioning of the Partidars to consolidate themselves as a community in villages. Um, and it's that consolidation which becomes a way to start controlling agrarian society at all levels, whether it's controlling bullocks or whether it's controlling land or whether it was controlling labor. And it's when... In the dem- in, uh, at the end of the 19th century, when you begin to see that Partidars are losing their control over the Dharalas, it's immediately in that period where the Dharalas are beginning to articulate certain demands that the Criminal Tribes Act is imposed and greater, again, greater controls over the Dharala labor are instituted. So I would argue that there's this uh, interesting and complex uh, nature of agrarian society that has developed in the 19th century uh, which led to kind of the implications of the 20th century uh, in central Gujarat. So actually, that brings us uh, to Ranchot Vida. And uh, would you say that he actually embodied, that he actually symbolized everything about the Tarala's political aspirations at the time? Um, I would say he was he was one of the figures. Uh, he's one of the figures that we know because of the kind of evidence that we that remains uh, regarding uh, his movement um, as I pointed out there were other uh, figures like Ranchor Vida uh, in the early parts of the 20th century who we don't know about uh, except for their names and their desires to create a different kind of political order in the countryside um, but I think he reflects a larger kind of sentiment uh, not just in Gujarat, but I think um, throughout India. And I would say that this is this is something that Ranjit Dua in his book Elementary Aspects of Peasant Insurgency um, identifies, um, which he doesn't fully uh, develop in the work, but I think is a, a very important observation, is that of the 110 or so um, rebellions that take place in the 19th century, what you find is that most of the rebellions were led by low-caste bhagats, uh, these low-caste village priests uh, who were leading these movements, for, and most of the time they were Vaishnav bhagats. So the question for me in thinking about Ranchod um, is uh, how does he fit into this larger project of, and I wouldn't say it's a, it's a unified project, but larger sets of concerns by these bhagats that, there's something fundamentally problematic uh, that's not ethical, that's not legitimate about the ways in which uh, statecraft is functioning all over India. And if we look at all these movements together, what we begin to see uh, is not simply the rebellion, I would argue, but really marking a certain kind of claim about both ethics and legitimacy um, that scholars really haven't fully, I think, developed because 
Um, peasant movements have typically just been seen as these sort of short-ended movements, whereas I've tried to argue that if we look at them within the context of intellectual movements, of religious movements and political movements, what you see is a very different kind of argumentation that's being proposed by um, these uh, Bhagats. Now, the big problem of studying Bhagats, of course, is that's part of an oral tradition that's not written. So we only have access to certain aspects of of what they may be thinking. Or Dadaram, you know, is a figure who comes very close uh, from where Ranchodvira, Ranchodvira is from in Gujarat, uh, basically about two or three miles away. And what's interesting about Ranchod's movement was that he uh, collected as many Dharala Bhagats as he could and uh, as a way to holding various kinds of political meetings with them. And after uh, Pancho's movement, what we begin to see is that he is arrested um, and then dies very quickly. But during the moment of his arrest, um, he wants to um, engage with the the police inspector, uh, as a way of engaging with, I argue, uh, as a way of engaging with sort of the main uh, representative of the colonial government. He sees himself as a legitimate king who wants to engage, um, and he's completely dismissed. His movement is, is squashed, but what's also interesting was that, you know, he was circulating all these letters, which I which I found were also circulating all over India. Uh, so he is a figure who uh, is participating in this kind of order to provide a certain kind of critique of the colonial state. And what struck me as really interesting is that even though he's arrested and he dies, uh, what the colonial government notices is that his letters continue to spread, uh, questioning the colonial state's legitimacy to exist. And this poses a major threat. And what struck me was, again, uh, I'm not interested. I wasn't interested in the fact that his movement didn't last. But what I was interested in was thinking about how ideas uh, that he's proposing uh, and the supporters were proposing circulate um, over and over again, not just in among other Dharala supporters, but in the larger um, area of Gujarat. And these letters end up in in Baroda. They end up in neighboring states. Um, by 1906. We see that uh, there's this figure, Dadaram Bhagat, who's also uh, he's questioning the legitimacy of the colonial government, but in a certain sense, he's acting like a king. He provides food for the poor. He provides certain kinds of relief. He provides certain kinds of uh, critiques of the government, but he's not he's not seen as a threat to the colonial order. Uh, but in many ways, is one could see him as a, as an interesting successor. Uh, to Dabaram, and what I would, I mean, to to the our earlier Bhagat, but you also have, I would argue, these are the ones that we know about. There is a world of ideas and sets of fears that we simply don't know about. And what I've argued in the book as, as a methodological concern for historians is that, you know, we would like to have documents and records, but at another level, what's interesting is the possibilities of other ways of thinking that simply have gone unrecorded. Um, and at this time, that's all oftentimes we can say, that there, there are these possibilities. And that's, in many ways, um, what has excited me about work is, is think about, you know, what are the other ways in which people are thinking about their existence in, in the colonial world in this period of great transformation of both demographic crisis, but also the emergence of nationalism. So, uh I understand that you've made a couple of research trips to Gujarat um, to track down and talk to the descendants of uh, both um, Ranchod and Daduram. So could you tell us something about your experiences? Because this was actually talking about local history to people who might not actually get the significance of what you're talking about because they might actually end up undervaluing their own movements. Did you get a sense of that? Um, actually, I got, I mean, what, what struck me as very interesting is uh, for example, with Dadaram's uh, descendants, uh, I would say these aren't his. Uh, these are his intellectual descendants. I would argue his religious disciples in other ways uh, have seen themselves in many ways as um, as transforming the kind of normative narratives of nationalism. 
um, taking themselves very seriously and sort of wanting to participate and as part of now the national project. Um, so thus far, they have been, you know, you can walk around central Gujarat, go to most villages uh, in central Gujarat, uh, which are any kind of Pakidar presence, and what you see is Pakidar leadership, Gandhi, the Congress is what is often celebrated uh, in these villages. But when you talk to uh, these uh, descendants of figures like Adhuram, they too want to participate in this national project that they were uh, that they see as having been excluded from for nearly a century. Um, and in their kind of oral narratives, uh, especially this one oral narrative about the place of Gandhi, um, they see that Dadaram was a was one of Gandhi's teachers. That Gandhi himself became becomes a disciple. Uh, in their narrative, so in a certain sense, they're um, you know they're overturning the normative narrative of Gandhi into a very different kind of narrative. Now, one might say, well, why is this important or why is this relevant? They don't just do it for Gandhi. They do it, for example, when it comes to questions of caste. Uh, Adhuram is seen as a much more powerful religious leader than, for example, the Shankaracharya. So you have these oral narratives of Dadaram engaging with Shankaracharya and, and, and outwitting him, out-dialoguing with him, uh, out, uh, he's able to maneuver all these kind of powers that even the Shankaracharya doesn't have. And again, I think these kinds of narratives provide a way to sort of really thinking both in terms of how the, the descendants of these uh, Dharalas, and they no longer identify themselves as Dharalas, that's the first uh, issue. Um, how they want to see themselves within the context of the nation state. I mean, in a certain sense, the, nation, the hegemony and the ideas of the nation state have blown out, but how do they want to see themselves moving forward in, in a place, in a world in which they have basically not been accounted for? Uh, so, what would you say were the like, most important things that came up uh, as a result of your fieldwork? You know, what are the major issues that you had to deal with while talking to all these people and finding out oral histories? Yes. Um, I would say that, you know, um, for me, the most important, or the serious most important things was the intellectual conversation, intellectual dialogue, and the ways in which uh, these individuals have interpreted and understood the kind of changes that have happened in 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 the 19th and the 20th centuries. So in what I was interested in doing and doing the oral histories was to try to understand the, try to look at the kind of ways in which nationalism and colonialism have been remembered uh, in the post-colonial period, right? Um, and how these figures of Dabiram, Ranchoda, Gandhi, of others um, are remembered in reality. So at one level, these individuals are very aware of the fact of their own poverty, um, of the fact that they have lost out in land reforms, for example. They've lost out on uh, land rights, of labor rights. Um, they've also, in many ways, lost out to the kind of alliances that they created with other minority marginal groups in India, uh, with Karyajans, the Akhivasis, Muslims, Kshatriyas, um, they feel that in many ways um, they didn't benefit due to their class status uh, from the kind of transformations and promises um, of pretty much all the government that came into power. At another level, I think discursively, um, they are also sensitive to the fact that they are not part of the history writing. Uh, they're not part of the oral narrative. They're not part of the story in which the Indian nation came into being. So in many ways, and also at the level of caste, uh, I think they also recognize their marginal status. And what's, what's in my re current research, which I didn't address um, in the book, is that, for example, that the Criminal Tribes Act, in which the entire Dharala population was criminalized, is, uh, was revoked by the government of India in 1952, so five years after independence, 
But however, in 1952, all criminal tribes were replaced uh, by the uh, by the Habitual Offenders Act. So all criminal members of criminal tribes are now identified as habitual offenders, and it is estimated that 60 to 80 million habitual offenders in India today. But there was one other thing that happened, which was the government of India uh, denotified all the tribes. But but one community that was never denotified was the Dalit. Um, by the government of India. So they have this kind of awkward liminal space in which they're they're still not classified as a criminal tribe. Community um, associations, NGOs that work with criminal tribes don't know that the Ralas, even though they were one of the largest criminal tribes in Western India, were even criminal tribes. So they've not benefited either from sort of non-government sponsored projects or government sponsored projects. Um, and so, in many ways, for me, in, in, in sort of coming back to your question, thinking about uh, what has meant um, the most important thing was is highlighting these kinds of issues and these, these individuals and groups that I was communicating with and interacting with are fully aware of both the political, the economic, discursive, historical uh, marginalization the community has faced. Um, and so I think, for me, that was one of the most uh, important things to, to recognize that rather than sort of dismissing the, the right ideas, but to actually take them seriously because no one else um, in the locality is really trying to take them seriously uh, as having this very specific kind of history um, from figures like Gandhi saying you need to erase your past, you need to forget the past, to even government organizations today that don't recognize this past of criminal tribes, to the NGOs that have forgotten that this was in, uh, a criminal uh, tribe uh, as well, um, to the continuity, the things that are continuing regarding um, uh, the legacies of being a habitual offender or criminal tribe continue even today. That's very interesting. I mean, despite the fact that you, they were aware that they did not really figure in the written records and uh, that probably kind of worked to the disadvantage. You mentioned an incident uh, on page 190 and 191, your visit to the Shrine of Ranshod Veera. When they didn't really want to tell you about the, you know, the hidden history behind the shrine. Could you tell us something more about that? Yes. Um, I think what, what struck me was that you still have uh, in, in attached to the shrine, it's a very informal shrine. Um, and it's, um, I think what, what was interesting was that the desire to at least recognize, but yet at the same time uh, make it innocuous such that government officials entering the village would not, be, uh, would not know of its significance. And in many ways, the state is still seen as possessing this certain kind of power by which uh, it will continue to be marginalized. And so for me, the question was, do I talk about this shrine in history? Because I asked them, should I write about this? Because in a certain sense, what you're arguing is you, you want to keep it hidden, but you're telling me, and so would, would, would this be something that would be okay to discuss? And, and they all said yes, recognizing a certain kind of contradiction in that. Uh, but what struck me was also was that the, the oral narrative around the hidden shrine was that this figure Ranchor Vira is a figure who still protects um, these individuals. Um, and they also talk about that the shrine had protected individuals in the past, especially during the colonial period, in which individuals could live independently of the nationalist movement and independently of the nation state. Uh, and I mean, independently of the colonial state. So it was in that, that space of the nationalist movement where the Pakistanis were wanting to have greater controls over these Daralas, where the colonial state was also interested in having greater controls. And you see that they were arguing is that that in this area, in this locality, in this specific area around the shrine, you had Daralas who were living autonomously, independently. Um, and, what, and, and for these individuals, these are uh, narratives uh, that are extremely powerful. There was a world in the past which lived independently of, 
of all forms of state, and there's a possibility for the future in which um, the kind of powers the state is evoking uh, and marginalizing these groups perhaps is a way to think about the future. Now, one could argue that this is a potentially utopian vision, but so what? I mean, in a certain sense that you have pretty much every figure who's rocking uh, throughout the 20th century in the locality, was, whether, whether it was Gandhi or others, has some kind of utopian vision of a world, right? And so, in a sense, it's a world in which the state that does not have power over you uh, is a world which is a better world um, that, that's continually being articulated through, this, through the discussion of this particular shrine, I would argue. Yeah, and uh, they're actually very adept at uh, controlling the historical record and, you know, being very selective about what information, like, gets written about them, goes out about them. Yes. Um, you mean at the time in the uh, in the pre-independence uh, period or in the post-colonial uh, period? Well, in the post-colonial period, yeah, like currently, for example. Well, what I've... What I've written about recently um, is the impact of Hindutva, for example, uh, in the, among the Dharmalists. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something I touched on in my book. Um, what I was talking about in terms of their, so maybe taking a step back, what I argued in the book was that there was, a, there was an awareness of these uh, Dharmalists, for example, the powers of the colonial state. Uh, documenting their movements uh, and the desire not to enter the colonial archive, right, of not being monitored, of not being documented. At another level, now, uh, in the post-colonial period, there is a desire to be documented as being uh, not be a member of a criminal tribe, of being documented as a citizen that possesses certain kinds of rights, um, of being documented by NGOs so they can get certain kinds of benefits um, of rehabilitation, of education, of investment, and so on. Um, but at another level, it's to be documented as someone who makes history. Um, so in, uh, in a recent uh, article that I've written um, that kind of takes the argument of my book into the 21st century, is really trying to look at why the Rala's became interested in participating in the 2002 violence um, as a way of being forever documented as participants in the making of a different kind of nation, right? Of, in, of, uh, the arguments of just being participants in the making of a, an anti-colonial movement or in the making of a certain kind of nationalism, we find that the Ralas, some Dharalas are now participating in the making of a certain kind of Hindu nation. And so that's kind of where uh, I've, it's not something I discuss in my book, um, but it's something that I'm thinking about in terms of, you know, are these early histories of the 19th and 20th century connected to the ways in which Aralas, who want to be now identified as makers of history, as individuals who cannot be forgotten uh, for their participation in a certain kind of violence, in a certain kind of donation. Uh, whereas everyone else seems to have not acknowledged their presence. This is the kind of nation in which some of the Rawls are now pushing for. And I don't have a complete answer. I mean, it's something that I haven't gone back and, and uh, sort of done further oral histories in terms of thinking about that. But it is something that's been on the mind, that's been on the mind of many scholars since 2002 in terms of how do we account for what's happening in central Gujarat or happened in central Gujarat kinds of changes that have been happening, uh, both economic, political, historical, and again, uh, at the discursive level. And so, I think, for me, it's, it's, under, it's recognizing, as you pointed out, right, I mean, at one level, not wanting to be documented, to now want to be part of this kind of narrative, part of this story, uh, which is both a sobering reminder, I think, uh, uh, of, you know, the, the problems of nationalism, I would say, and the problems of perhaps all forms of nationalism. That the nationalism in and of itself is a double-edged sword at one level, offering a certain kind of universal, emancipatory kind of politics, but at another level, having this dark side 
of political society, as Partha Chatterjee says, um, that exists uh, simultaneously. Right? So it's as scholars trying to navigate uh, between the two in terms of thinking about how are we going to understand uh, nationalism um, in the 21st century. That was illuminating. Um, it was, uh, I mean, we don't really get to know this sort of thing, I mean, about Gujarat. It's like a very, it's little known history, you know, so I think uh, it's like really fuses historiography and, uh, you know, more theoretical, con- more theoretical concepts very nicely. But uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. But my final question would be, where do you see your research going from here? Uh, could you just repeat the oh, last part? I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, well, it's more like uh, this book, you know, it's a good fusion of, you know, historiography and, um, you know, a socio-cultural study. And obviously, it's got a lot of theoretical mo- theoretical models, like, you know, underpinning it. So the issue is, where do you see your research going from here now? Well, my current, uh, so in addition to sort of writing this yes. follow-up to um, the book, uh, which I call yes. From Peasant Past to Hindutva Futures, question mark, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many ways, it's, it's formed a bridge to my current project on uh, thinking about the impact of Hindutva um, over the 20th century, which has led me to a uh, book project on the writings of, uh, of V.D. Savarkar. Um, in terms of his... Uh, his arguments about strategy of creating a Hindu nation, uh, his arguments about uh, both the the political realm, uh, the historical, the discursive, and in many ways, I argue that you know he understood the what we call cultural hegemony today very. You know, he understood that very well um, as a way of thinking about uh, the division of labor within society to creating a certain type of Hindu nation. One of you know, things that Inoxus says, renaming places, renaming uh, cities, renaming uh, uh, streets, to uh, children's education, to history writing, to civil war. Um, all of these, in many ways, were part of his uh, political strategy of thinking about creating a Hindu nation. So in many ways, I think what 2002 has done for many historians, or even if you look at the period between 1992 and 2002, um, especially in Western India, those who um, work on either Maharashtra, Gujarat, um, this decade in many ways um, has provided a very um, important kind of recognition and shift in trying to understand, well, how did we get to this point today, um, which Hindutva, or many arguments of Hindutva have become mainstream um, without individuals who recognizing them as mainstream sets of arguments. Um, and, I, and for me, um, I think Savarkar provides that optic to understanding kinds of shifts that have taken place. So at one level, you know, I think uh, uh, individuals uh, haven't read Savarkar, I mean, it's, and, and they've read very select uh, uh, articles of his or select texts of his, but for me, it provides a way of thinking about the kinds of changes of the 20th century by which we can explain the kinds of shifts that have taken place. Um, so in many ways, I think it's also a continuity of uh, methodologically in terms of thinking about the movement of ideas, um, the ways in which people are thinking, in which arguments are received, the ways in which people read certain types of texts. Uh, which is exactly what I was trying to do in many ways in terms of thinking about agrarian society in the first book project. This, um, uh, in many ways, is looking uh, at similar sets of themes in terms of how we get to 2002 or 1992 uh, in India. Um, and for me, I think Sovereign provides a certain kind of optic in thinking about it and uh, hopefully will provide a way in terms of trying to understand uh, the shifts that are taking place within uh, you know, Indian society, not to legitimate Savarkar's arguments, but to look at the ways in which um, his arguments have been received. Um, and, and it's not simply, I would argue, by uh, a handful of individuals uh, who support Hindutva. In fact, many of his arguments are part of mainstream thought. 
uh, which people oftentimes don't want to acknowledge. Uh, as, you know, they complain that they don't like his arguments, but yet articulate his arguments. And that struck me as something that's very uh, important to try to understand as a way of thinking about, you know, how do we uh, prevent these kinds of events from happening in the future? It's very important not simply to ignore the writing, but actually to read the writing to understand both the inner logic and provide a much more systematic critique of that argument. Uh, and, and that's what my uh, project is trying to do. Well, that was great. Uh, that sounds very different from your current project, but I'm sure it'll be fantastic just the same. Um, well, thank you for giving uh, so much of your time to the New Books Network. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much for having me, and I've enjoyed it very much. Well, it's a privilege. Goodbye. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. So, Fox, that was Vinayak Chaturvedi on Gujarat's designs and their negotiations with and opposition to the state and local power elites. A great, great book, a cross between a travelogue and a socio-historical study of a people often dubbed apolitical. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.